Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was perhaps the most brutal week yet for Donald Trump, who absorbed a series of strong legal and political setbacks, yet his malign influence continued to exert a strong gravitational pull in big lie MAGA politics that are about to ascend in Congress and an arch-conservative U.S. Supreme Court that looked poised in two cases to wrench the Constitution farther right. On the political front, Trump's hand-picked Georgia Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, perhaps the single most unqualified, indeed ridiculous, major party Senate candidate in a generation, lost a runoff to Senator Raphael Warnock, extending Trump's two-year losing streak. The Democrats now have swept the midterms field in the six states that Biden turned blue in 2020. But the Georgia election was a walk on the beach relative to Trump's bruising week in the criminal justice system. First, the Trump Organization was convicted on all nine counts of fraud, a result with grave financial and graver reputational consequences for Trump and his family. Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith moved to hold Team Trump in contempt in the Mar-a-Lago documents case after two more classified documents turned up at a West Palm Beach storage locker and then served a new series of subpoenas to state officials involved in Trump's January 6th phony elector scheme. Finally, the January 6th committee served notice that it intends to make at least one criminal referral to DOJ, and given the committee's relentless focus on Trump, it seems all but certain that he will be the first president to have the dubious distinction of being referred to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. And yet, Even as the former president was getting clobbered in the political and legal arenas, it remained far from clear that his stranglehold on the national political scene has loosened substantially, and he remains what passes as the current frontrunner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. More importantly, Trump's legacy achievement, a hyper-conservative United States Supreme Court, heard argument in two closely watched cases and the court seemed poised in both, to redraw constitutional lines in ways that would bring delight to conservative Republicans. To assess where Donald Trump and the country are left in the wake of an explosive week in the Supreme Court, the Department of Justice, and the January 6th Committee, I'm thrilled to welcome an amazing group of legal and political authorities. And they are Emily Bazelon, a journalist and national best-selling author. Emily's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, co-host of Political Gab Fest, the popular and really excellent podcast from Slate, and a lecturer and Truman Capote fellow at Yale Law School. Before joining the Times, she worked for nine years as a senior editor at Slate. Her newest book, now available in paperback, is Charged. The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Emily, thanks so much for being with us on Talking Feds. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Professor Larry Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University Professor and Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard, where he has taught since 1968. 
Um, we could go the rest of the hour with his many uh, tributes. He is the dean of constitutional law in this country. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences at the ripe age of 38 and to the American Philosophical Society in 2010. He helped write the constitutions of South Africa, the Czech Republic, and the Marshall Islands. He has written, I'm about to gulp, you will too, Emily, 115 books and articles, including his treatise, American Constitutional Law, which, of course, has been cited more than any legal text since 1950. And that's when they started keeping records. Professor Larry Tribe, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you for having me, Harry. It's my pleasure. And Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Since 2007, the junior senator from Rhode Island. Previously, he served as the United States Attorney in the District of Rhode Island from 1993 to 1998. So I think we overlapped for a week or two as U.S. attorneys. And after that, the 71st Attorney General of Rhode Island before being elected to the Senate where he serves on the Judiciary, Finance, Environment and Public Works, and the Budget Committee. It is his fifth visit to Talking Feds, I'm thrilled to say, and it's always such an honor to welcome him. Thank you very much, Senator, for joining us. Thanks, Harry. Happy to be back. All right. So a lot of large-fought headlines in several different arenas, and it's kind of hard to compare their importance. But let's start with the runoff in Georgia and the securing of a clean Democratic majority in the Senate. So just first, a quick kind of postmortem. Senator Warnock's margin doubled between Election Day and the runoff. What happened that put Warnock over the top, does it now appear? Well, hard to know what happened. I think what we need to do to follow up on Professor Tribe's point is we need to think as a party about why it is that we only won by three points against one of the most defective candidates ever to hold themselves out for political office. So while everybody's taking a very cheerful victory lap now, I think uh, that victory lap may obscure some underlying conditions that we need to address before 2024 when we have a much, much rougher geographic map of races and when the Republicans may... Uh, favor us with fewer defective candidates. Can I load you up as long as everyone's picking on you? Because you wrote about, you know, 51 makes all kinds of difference. So maybe after touching on what you think happened, can you describe or elaborate on the edge that this 51 to 50 gives you and your now 50 Democratic colleagues? The 51 does really two big things. One has to do with confirmations, which matters a lot in the Judiciary Committee for Judges, and that is it gives us an operating majority on the committee so that if all the Democrats vote for a nominee, they go straight onto the executive calendar and move to the floor, whereas before, if all the Democrats voted for uh, the individual but no Republican did, they would come out a tie, and that would require Chuck Schumer to call up a special discharge petition to move them from the committee to the floor, which adds an extra vote. And when you're pressed for voting time, it will make a difference in terms of moving nominees along to uh, judicial positions, particularly. And then the other thing that it does is that unless the specific committee rules indicate otherwise, under regular order, committees now can do subpoenas without needing to uh, have Republicans cooperate. 
I don't think that there was a single subpoena the entire last Congress because we'd need a Republican to go along with it and they weren't interested. Those seem very tangible. And by the way, just to quickly answer my own question, the one thing that stood out for me is there were 400,000 fewer votes cast in the runoff, which suggested to me that a lot of people who had held their nose and voted for Walker just stayed home. But, you know, we've got Republican rule coming in the House and a promised kind of reign of terror. Is there any respect in which either the subpoena power or just the clean majority can serve to counteract the coming mischief from that side, or is that completely sort of separate kind of force? No, I think it's not separate at all. I think if you start from the proposition that I start from, which is that most everything that the Republicans do in Congress, uh, they're being told to do by the big dark money operation that funds them when they are getting preposterous in their behavior, instead of just having to sit there and take it, we can do our own pushback, uh, including potentially even investigative pushback to try to you know, follow the money and expose the connections that are driving this behavior. There's a very strong connection, I believe, between the dark money forces uh, and what they want and what Republicans end up doing. So they have a real vulnerability uh, that we can look into, and I think we should. I think we should be doing it whether or not they misbehave. Investigate the investigators of the investigators. Exactly. Potentially. <laughs> well, what is really going on here is the story I think yeah. we can tell. A story you've been telling uh, really effectively and assiduously for a couple of years. I was going to ask, Senator, do you think there's any truth in this way of looking at it, which I've been playing with, and that is that there is the same dark, invisible hand behind the powers of the right that will temporarily be in charge of the House. And the resistance by the MAGA forces in the Senate and the technical independence of the two chambers is sort of overcome by the fact that it is that same dark hand with the same deep pockets that you can investigate and therefore can have sort of cross-chamber impact on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think that if you wanted to add another place where the dark money forces have enormous clout, it's also across the street from us at uh, your stomping grounds, the United States Supreme Court, right, where they're responsible for putting a considerable number of the Supreme Court justices on the court, I would say five, and give them robust instruction through flotillas of amici curiae whose real sponsors are not disclosed under the Supreme Court rule, and with an astonishing correlation between what the dark money amici want and where the decision actually goes. I have a question about what you mentioned earlier, Senator Whitehouse, about why the race was close. So, I mean, one explanation for that is Georgia often elects Republicans. The senators are the only statewide office holders who are Democrats, Warnock and Ossoff. So it's not that surprising it would be close. And the only reason that Warnock was able to win was Walker was such a defective candidate. And you were talking about lessons for 2024. And so I wondered whether you were talking about the message that Democrats have to put together to try to overcome their weaknesses in red or purple areas of the country, or whether you were talking about the Trumpiness of the candidates, you know, whether 
Trump will be at the top of the ticket, whether candidates like Walker, who are weak, but he supports are who Democrats are running against. I was just curious what you meant. I think that there is a Trump and MAGA strain that runs through the Republican Party at very high levels of visibility and rancor and gets a lot of attention. Separately, there's the dark money operation, which does not want attention, but I think is actually even more powerful. And I think it's that latter operation that has caused a lot of the upset and frustration of the American public when they look at a Congress that doesn't do any of the stuff that they want. And then Trump captured that frustration and turned it back against <laughs> against the uh, people who were frustrated. But I think there are two risks. And I think the Trump blessing for us may very well be gone by 2024. So we really need to have done our homework and headed down the runway of being ready to explain to the American public what the hell is going on with this huge dark money operation and how deeply it has pushed its tentacles into the agencies of government. I'd like to stick with 2024 for um, um, a minute or two. You know, so on the one hand, Emily, as you say, it's right now about a four or five natural deficit. So, you know, Warnock did buck the odds a bit. Moreover, with Georgia's victory, every state I think that Biden was able to switch from 2016 to 2020 since then has now gone for Democrats, pointing to a possible repeat of the path to the presidency of last time out. On the other hand, much worse, as the senator was saying. So at the Senate level, both the numbers and some of this particular races are, the New York Times this morning called it foreboding. If it's true that the 2024 election starts this week, the day after the 2022 election, people are already thinking of some of the more daunting uphill climbs, yes? Yeah, there's some very, very challenging situations for us. I think the demography of the president, assuming that he runs, um, he'll be quite old, and they'll have a lot of time to work him over and mock him in hearings and so forth. And our geography in the Senate is terrible. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I think we have 23 of the 33 seats that are up are Democrats, and a lot of them are going to be very challenging races. West Virginia is going to be a very challenging race. Montana is going to be a very challenging race. Sherrod Brown is a spectacular person and a spectacular candidate. But Tim Ryan was a pretty darn good candidate, too, and we couldn't pull it off in Ohio. So, you know, Sherrod's got a lot of work in front of him. So we we don't come in with a whole lot of, you know, easy pickup opportunities. And the Republicans are looking at several pickup opportunities. Do we have any? What are the pickup opportunities we do have? None come to mind. Let's put it that way. Going forward, the senator averted to we might not have it's a, it's ironic, but we might not have the blessing of Trump's curse on his candidates or, or fewer ridiculous ones. And Trump himself, I think, is highly motivating for our voters. So Right. So what do you see as the sort of Trump effect going forward? I just think the, the more he's involved, the better we're likely to do. And I don't think he goes quietly. So if he's not the candidate, he probably is out raising hell and being as vindictive and vituperative as he can be. So I think there's the real danger that he is a real hand grenade in the Republican Party. 
But in the event that they solve that problem in some way, I think we also have to be laying down the foundation for an argument that a lot of what annoys people about the way our government is going has a lot to do with special interest control and secret special interest control and huge amounts of secret special interest money. Most recently, the $1.6 billion that went to Leonard Leo. So they're not kidding around. And we've done a terrible job of uh, raising that issue to the American public and positioning ourselves as the people who are going to go in and, and fix it, which is ironic because if you look at the polling on it, it's hated completely across the board. Whether you're a Bernie bro or a Tea Partier, everybody hates this goddamned secret, dark, massive political money. And we've just failed to take advantage of this massive opportunity. Even after Jane Mayer reported that, you know, this was the topic that Mitch McConnell's minions and the Koch brothers' minions agreed with kryptonite for them. You know, before we leave Trump behind, I think that regardless of what happens on the political front, the very fact that he is quite likely to be under indictment well before the election and that there there may even be a trial underway will make it impossible for him to recede from the horizon. I mean, he right. would be visibly pleading the case that he is the victim of a terrible witch hunt, that the election was stolen, that the Constitution might as well be ripped up. That's going to keep him helpfully for us in the headlines so that the fear that some have expressed that indicting a former president will be political suicide for the Democrats, I think, has it backwards. I think it will be the beginning of a march to accountability, and it will also keep him helpfully visible on the horizon. I mean, I was struck by a, a comment from Bernie Sanders a few weeks ago that it will be horrible for the country if Trump is the presidential candidate, but good for Democrats. And there's a tension yeah. there for Democrats, right? I mean, if Trump is not the presidential candidate, even if his woes remain really serious, and I think even in the headlines, I just don't think it's going to have the same kind of weight. And so then from the point of view of Democrats, one might want to have him less wounded and more of a problem for another candidate, whether it's Ron DeSantis or someone else. But I do think that it's really bad for the country to have Trump be so omnipresent in the discourse. And here's my chance to say we at Talking Feds are country first, party second. All right, so let's move from the political sphere to the legal, or perhaps everyone here would say to the political sphere, but with robes. Huge week in the Supreme Court, starting with the argument in 303 Creative, another challenge. This time, I think very importantly, on the basis of the First Amendment free speech clause, not the free exercise clause, to Colorado's public accommodations law forbidding discrimination against LGBTQ persons. So kind of a reprise of Masterpiece Cake Shop. If we have a, a little bit of time at the end, maybe we can get to it. But the higher profile argument was Wednesday, the case of Moore versus Harper raising the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. I think it's just something whose name has become familiar to Americans, but it's still kind of murky what it is. I, I'm very glad to have Marshall McLuhan right here in the person of Professor Tribe. Would you possibly just give us a sort of two-minute precy of the issue uh, that is before the court in Moore v. Harper? 
Sure, I'd be glad to. In Morvey Harper, North Carolina had a grossly distorted district map that was very discriminatory, so much and so obviously a political gerrymander that the highest court of North Carolina said that it violates the state's constitution in various ways. A number of people, primarily the North Carolina House of Representatives, said, wait a minute, our state Supreme Court has no role to play because Article One of the Constitution says that it is up to state legislatures to draw district lines and decide how federal representatives are going to be chosen, both representatives and senators, because Article One talks about the state legislature. And a lot of people then recognize that Article Two also names the state legislature as the body that's to decide how electors for president are to be chosen. That made this a, a twofer case in which if the Supreme Court were to agree with the extreme view, state legislature is a kind of free-floating animal that doesn't arise out of the state constitution and can't be controlled by the state's highest court, then all kinds of democratic mischief could occur and democracy would be in peril. The argument made it clear that that was kind of a stalking horse. There really are not five votes for the bizarre, extreme, unfounded, completely ungrounded view that the state courts are cut out of the role that they conventionally play. The real question is whether the compromise that is being floated by a lot of people really is a compromise or is itself a doomsday machine. Or compromises, maybe you could well, say. There are right? several, but I think the prominent one is one in which the U.S. Supreme Court would say, oh, it's fine for the state's highest court just to interpret what the state legislature has done, maybe even to strike down lines the state legislature has drawn, but not to redraw the lines, draw its own lines. That would be venturing into impermissibly judicial territory, as though the federal constitution imposed its own vision of the right role of the several branches of the state government. But that would be a formula for permanent stalemate. That is, if the most the state court could do is say, this is a terrible gerrymander, do it again. And they do it again, and the court says, you haven't quite got it right, nothing would happen. And if anything would happen, it would be potentially devastating to democracy. And there are similar problems on the horizon for the clause that allows state legislatures to possibly set aside the votes of the state's people and pick their own slate of electors. So by making it look like what the court is likely to do in June is kind of a modest thing, they will have rejected this completely wildcat version of the independent state legislature idea. I think they will have their cake and eat it too. It'll look like, oh, we, we dodged a bullet. But in fact, there will be a hand grenade waiting to explode. And that's what worries me about this case. The argument didn't give me much solace. It just reaffirmed my idea that the court is not going to fall off the deep end this time, but it is going to do something that might look moderate and yet be very dangerous to constitutional democracy. I'll just add one thing which is that these always take place, as we've learned ruefully, against a backdrop of a ticking clock that makes courts at their worst and makes that sort of stalemate be all the more precarious. Senator, you filed a brief here 
that included the refrain you were discussing about dark money and the like, but made some other points. You don't do that in every Supreme Court case, although you're one of the most focused on the court of all of your colleagues, even on the uh, committee. Why did you take the somewhat unusual step of doing that? The court, I believe, has huge reputational risks related to the amici who come in without disclosing who's really behind them. Which they don't have to under Supreme Court rules, right? Well, they kind of have to. It's a weird reading of the rule. Basically, Mm -hmm. they're allowed to read it as if the only thing you actually have to report is who paid for the printing and binding of the brief and not like who gave you the million dollars. So they need to upgrade that. But in the meantime, I wanted to use this particular case to emphasize the danger to the court of not cleaning up that mess because the amici that came into this particular case were truly a noxious crowd. And the lack of disclosure prevented the court from knowing that Some of the people who filed briefs were under criminal investigation. Some of the groups that filed briefs have been party to the efforts to overturn the uh, recent presidential election. One of them is a corporate tentacle of an entity whose other corporate tentacle spent millions and millions of dollars to stop Garland and push Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett onto the court. And that raises, at least in a general way, the Caperton concerns about due process and ethics when somebody's in front of the court who spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to get justices onto the court, that not being disclosed makes it even worse. So I tried to put as much of a spotlight as I could on this really wretched assemblage of amici to illustrate to the court how it's in its own best interest to clean up at least this particular mess that it's stuck in and it should be easy to do. I want to follow up on Professor Tribe's point. Let's say the court doesn't go over the cliff, but I was kind of struck how everybody on the court, even the progressive three, seemed willing to embrace some version of this idea that, you know, in certain circumstances, depending on a federal court's judgment of how far off the reservation a state court had gone, that as a matter of federal law, you would disempower the state court and anoint the state legislatures, who, of course, everyone knows are disproportionately Republican. Was that your sense as as well, that some version of this is coming? And I'll just add one point, which is from its fountainhead, In Bush v. Gore, the opinion there from Chief Justice Rehnquist seemed to think that the Florida Supreme Court had somehow passed this standard of acting, you know, completely beyond the pale. And yet it seemed clear to me that they had really been doing a a professional job, by which I just mean to say that these questions are always going to play out at a juncture of high partisan passion, which I think clouds people's minds about how off the courts with the opposing views might be. I was going to say, I'm not only old enough to have remembered it, I'm old enough to have argued it. Bush v. Palm Beach County. Right, right. Which Kavanaugh, I think, quite rightly pointed out, the court unanimously didn't do anything dramatic of the sort that Rehnquist did in his concurring opinion in the second 
case, Bush v. Gore, it just sent the case back to the Florida Supreme Court to explain what in the world it was doing. But the Rehnquist opinion, which is the one on which some of the far right is trying to build a whole edifice, that was the one, not for the whole court, but only for actually the only person on the current court who was with him on that is Clarence Thomas, which is a story in and of itself. But it was only that Rehnquist opinion which gave the Supreme Court the bizarre role of second-guessing a state's highest court on the meaning of the state's law, something that I wish some of the moderates and liberals on the current court were courageous enough to repudiate entirely rather than buy into as they seem to. Although, yeah, what I thought it had been before is it had been repudiated in so many words by cabineting it as even the the court, the majority did as sort of sui generis, a case right. for this time only. But nope, you know, like a vampire, it reared its ugly head in the opinions of and support of three or four of the current uh, justices, which brings, you know, us to the forefront of the terror that Wednesday posed. I'm just going to pick up on that to say that I was struck by those same moves that seem to be happening, but also just really confused doctrinally. I mean, if you go back to the basis for this challenge, it's about the idea that the election clause means that only the legislature gets to do anything. But suddenly, like, we weren't on that terrain at all, because that terrain would mean erasing tons of constitutional state provisions, tons of state Supreme Court decisions. Like, that was sort of crazy land. So instead, there was all this attention to the idea of, okay, well, when can federal courts step in to stop state courts from interpreting their own state constitutions? But where does the legislature, capital L, mention in the elections clause fit in anymore? I mean, aren't we just talking about the slim read of Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush versus Gore? And like, was this just sort of, okay, well, Kavanaugh seemed quite attached to that, and maybe Roberts and Barrett too, and so we're just going to head in that direction? Maybe I'm misunderstanding you, Emily, but the elections clause does talk about the state legislature. So there's no doubt that if a state constitution said, notwithstanding the elections clause, we want the state's highest court, independent of the legislature, to draw district lines, that would clearly be unconstitutional under the federal constitution and the U.S. Supreme Court would be right in striking it down. Right. I understand that. You you did misunderstand me. My point is simply, I don't understand how the argument veered away from this very purist textualist reading of legislature, which I thought was the point, bananas as it may be, to this like question about whether to make Rehnquist holding law. (laughs) That seemed like quite a leap to why are we suddenly talking about what standards should be applied when state courts interpret state constitutions, which they have always done? I agree. I think that was a complete diversion. I think Neil Katyal, although he argued brilliantly in many ways, contributed to that diversion. He spent a huge amount of time on the question of whether the standard of review should be sky high, atmospherically high, stratospherically high nothing to do with the case or the issues before the court. Well, but it might have to do with the opinion. Emily, can I stick with you? Was it your sense that the three progressives were being strategic in some sense and aiming for some kind of damage mitigation by recognizing a, you know, 
stratospheric type response. And, and of course, Alito then comes in and says, well, it can't be too high that we can never apply it. But that, in fact, even Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson are telegraphing that they're ready to vote for some version of what I think is this total cockamamie idea, because it's not legislature versus not. It's that the legislature always acts uh, subject to the check of a state court saying you violated our state law. Yeah, I mean, I thought the three liberal justices were offering a bunch of exit ramps, and this was one of them. I liked Justice Jackson's point that state legislatures exist because of state constitutions. And so how could you take out the state constitution? I thought that was like very fundamental. But maybe, right, as you're saying, Harry, they need two more votes. And so they were looking for those votes. And I actually thought Justice Barrett, as well as Chief Justice Roberts, seemed receptive. But then the question becomes, first of all, as you said, how high is the bar for federal courts to interfere with state court interpretations of state constitutions? And then second of all, as you also alluded to before, I think, Professor Tribe, what's the remedy? We just saw in Ohio what happens when the state court says, I think, five times that the redistricting lines that the Ohio legislature drew were unconstitutional. But based on the Ohio statute that was governing, there was no way for the court to appoint a special master or step in and draw the lines itself. And so those unconstitutional lines were what people voted on. So, right, that's an example of the kind of stalemate you were talking about. And one hopes that the Supreme Court is not going to contribute to further scenarios of that sort, but it certainly seemed like a possibility after argument this week. You know, I think the the culprit is the court's internal procedure. They don't really discuss these cases until they get into the courtroom. And I think, to answer Harry's question, that Justices Kagan and probably Sotomayor, though not necessarily Justice Jackson, were trying to be strategic and trying, not knowing in advance whether the completely off the cliff, off the wall version was on the table. They were trying to signal in a way by talking about the standard of review. They were willing to find some halfway solution. Whereas if I'm right, the extreme version was never in play anyway. And I I think they may have in the same way that happens when you bid against yourself in a bargaining situation, they may have given away more than they would in retrospect. Can I ask a really simple question? Please. Based on my sort of practical political experience, one of the cases that really stands out is the old Rucho v. Common Cause case, which said that when somebody's doing partisan gerrymandering of a state, the court wasn't going to look into it because it was what they called non-justiciable, which was a weird finding because every case below, every court below had successfully adjudicated these matters. And there's really simple principle that you can apply to really clear fact. It's perhaps the most justiciable thing you could imagine. It's so easy. And yet they ducked it saying that it's non-justiciable. And now they're in this far more complicated morass of the engagement between the state elements of government. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of concern about justiciability. Well, one of the things they said in Rucho was that no, don't worry. This was Justice Kennedy for the majority because state courts will be able to interpret state law and they'll be able to deal with partisan gerrymandering that way. Yeah, <laughs> it actually undercut this argument. 
In the finest tradition of the savvy senator, I, I think that simple question is not so simple. But and in fact, it's very illuminating. I, you know, it seems to me equally. Let me let me use a non-legal word: ungainly to try to second guess the conduct of a state court and how far it's off the reservation when they are institutionally not just the final authority, but much, much more conversant and knowledgeable. There, they may actually dive in where others would fear to tread, whereas exactly as you say in Rucho, uh, Senator. Rucho's, I mean, those are easy cases to adjudicate. At least there's something to get your hand around and courts always have. Yeah, They're easily justiciable. That's why so much of this is all about Roberts. That is, Roberts and Rucho, who wrote the majority opinion, said explicitly that you shouldn't worry so much that we have taken federal courts out of the game because state courts applying the state constitution in the ordinary way can fix the problem. So much of this argument actually was about Roberts playing with that language, asking, well, when the state courts actually take over and apply mathematical formulae to draw lines themselves, is that really state courts acting in the ordinary way? That's all I had in mind, he is saying, in Rucho. You guys, like in the North Carolina Supreme Court, are doing way more than I ever permitted. And he's going to now be trying to draw a line very much the way he tried in Dobbs, but then lost. This time, I think he may get a majority for some weirdo compromise that is still dangerous. Yeah, I just want to pick up on Emily's point and, you know, say, well, wait to see. But what just three years ago, four years ago would have been a laugher of a fringe theory that, you know, wouldn't have gotten much purchase in a law school seminar some version of it, it looks to me, is going to be the law of the land and, and the mindset of everyone going in. If your supposition, Professor Tribe, about at least Kagan and Sotomayor is correct, is how do we make this not so bad? And that's where we are in the Supreme Court today. Well, some of us have the theory that there are dark money doctrine factories that churn this stuff out for the court and that they're highly receptive to that. Yeah. In the West Virginia versus EPA case, both the main opinion and the concurrence said, this is a major questions case. Oh, my God. As if that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'd never used that term before in the history of the Supreme Court. What do you mean this is a major questions case? And the fact that they both felt that they had to say it was such a, a sort of obeisance to the. Uh, dark money operation, it was almost creepy. That's the other great example, though, of the sort of conjuring up out of uh, thin air. For me, I just want to say that I think that the ethics problems around Ugh. the amici that yeah. were so evident in Moore v. Harper are part of a larger problem at the court that we have to address very seriously, and the court's willful blindness to its own incapacity in that regard, I think, is um, really dangerous for the institution. Yeah, I don't think we've heard the last of that from you, Senator, and over the last couple of years. Uh, an interesting article in The Atlantic by Glenn Fine this week. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a prominent person from another field to explain an important legal concept in the news. So of late, we've heard about the possibility of prosecutors in Fulton County or the Department of Justice offering immunity to witnesses in order to force their testimony. How does that work exactly? To explain the concept, I'm totally thrilled to welcome a prolific 
journalist, author, screenwriter, producer, and director of stage and screen. What hasn't he done? And all starting at the ripe old age of 15. It's sidebars like this that make me thank my lucky stars that I'm doing this podcast and have the opportunity to welcome Cameron Crowe. Cameron began his career as a journalist, and he made history as the youngest ever Rolling Stone contributor at the age of, yes, 15, before being promoted to editor. He then moved on to write a book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which involved his posing undercover as a high school student in San Diego at age 22. The book was auctioned as a film, which was his screenwriting debut and launched the careers of a number of great actors such as Nicolas Cage, Forrest Whitaker, Phoebe Cates, Sean Penn, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. Among his long list of writer and director credits are the hit movies Jerry Maguire, Say Anything, Vanilla Sky, Aloha, and the autobiographical film Almost Famous, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay in 2001. So I give you Cameron Crowe on target designation. Rudy Giuliani was informed recently that he's a target of the Fulton County Grand Jury investigation into possible violations of Georgia election law in connection with the efforts to undo the 2020 presidential election. But what does it mean to be a target? In the federal system, a person is a target when the prosecutor has made a provisional decision to indict based on the evidence already developed in the investigation. Department of Justice policy is to notify anyone considered a target before subpoenaing them to testify so that they're in a position to make a knowing and intelligent decision of whether to assert or waive their Fifth Amendment rights not to incriminate themselves. Sometimes targets still choose to testify to try to talk the grand jury out of charging them. That path, though, is perilous since their testimony can be used against them. So for reasons of fairness, the DOJ requires prosecutors to notify witnesses if they are in fact targets. In practice, the great majority of targets choose not to testify and assume they'll be charged. The department does not require targets to appear before a grand jury even if they have been subpoenaed. The target designation serves another important purpose for the DOJ and prosecutors. It notifies targets of their status, giving them an opportunity to offer to cooperate typically by providing evidence against other witnesses, before they are charged and saddled with a criminal record themselves. DOJ rules typically forbid calling a target to testify in the grand jury, but some states, such as Georgia, do not follow that practice. So in the case of Rudy Giuliani, he still was required by the court to testify, notwithstanding that he was a target. But it became more prudent for him to respond to the questions by asserting his rights under the Fifth Amendment, And while grand jury proceedings remain secret, it's a fairly safe surmise that that is exactly what Rudy Giuliani did. For Talking Feds, I'm Cameron Crowe. Thank you so much to Cameron Crowe for explaining target status. Big news for Cameron Crowe fans, which is almost famous, the musical with book and lyrics, of course, by Cameron Crowe, is now on Broadway. I know what I'm doing my next trip to New York City. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. 
In today's Spirit of Debate, we set the table for the topic of holiday wine. So many choices, so little help from the internet. Well, this year is different because you now know about the top 20 wines of the year list from Total Wine & More, so no more excuses. This comprehensive list covers all of your bases, from prices and profiles to all different types from all over the globe. All you have to do is choose. This year's list is especially exciting as it features many of my favorite wines, plus a few new surprises. The best part is there's something for everyone. Sparkling wines, reds, whites, and sweet wines. Make sure no stone or bottle is unturned. You can use Total Wine's Top 20 Wines as a checklist for all of your holiday gatherings. Or as the perfect gift-giving guide because every wine on the list has been a top seller this past year. And each bottle comes highly recommended by our wine buyers as well as highly regarded wine industry experts. We saved the best part for last, and that's the price. Most of these people-pleasing wines are under $20. Proving a top bottle doesn't have to cost top dollar. So pop into Total Wine for the top 20 wines of the year list and pick up a guaranteed winner, along with the confidence in knowing you've got this holiday season under control. And no need to thank us. Tasting all of these wines definitely makes our top 20 list a favorite parts of the job. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. We do have a minute or two if anyone has anything they wanted to unburden themselves of on 303 Creative. Needn't be, but the floor is yours. So it's a good example of a case that the court basically constructed itself as though it was a bunch of law professors writing a con law exam. 100%, yeah. Gorsuch kept saying, but look at these stipulations. Kagan rightly pointed out the court doesn't really have a case in front of it. This web designer never designed, never did what she's hypothetically asking for the right to do. And the court is going to be using it, a case that it basically created itself by granting cert when there was no conflict and there are no real facts in order to basically put the religion, free exercise of religion above the establishment clause principle and above anti-discrimination. I mean, it's kind of a disgraceful performance. And it probably is the result of lots of dark money that helps build what political scientists call Overton windows, that is, makes thinkable things that would previously have been unthinkable and then climbs through the window in a way that creates dangerous precedent. So point taken, they manufactured this case. Then I feel like there are a couple of relatively easy ways to resolve it. You could say there is no First Amendment speech consideration here because creating a website is merely being a conduit for somebody else's speech, in this case, celebrating a same-sex wedding. So there was that possibility. Then there's the possibility of acknowledging there is a First Amendment consideration here, but saying that the state can pass its own anti-discrimination statute and If that entails some infringing on free speech rights, we're okay with that. But if you don't take those exit ramps, then you're in the land of what seems to me like really hard line drawing about which kinds of businesses open to the public get to say this is expression. I mean, if the idea is that in some way any endorsement of a same-sex wedding could be read and any participation, any giving of services could be read as an endorsement, then Aren't you asking like the florist, the makeup artist, the people who bring the chairs for the caterer to also line up if they don't want to provide services? And then also, I know Justice Alito thinks that you can separate same-sex marriages from interracial marriages or other forms of invidious discrimination. But that also seems really questionable as a way to draw a line. And I just 
could imagine this case causing a great deal of trouble for lower courts. This area is deeply troubled no matter what you do. Remember when all of the law schools, including Harvard, said, even though it's not our speech, we think we are implicitly endorsing the don't ask, don't tell policy by letting the ROTC recruit on our campus. Even though there's a neutral rule, and this is only an incidental effect on speech. So even when the speaker is a third person, there's no easy way out of this. And I don't think it's going to be solved by having silos of certain businesses that are thought to be expressive. There's no doubt that what the court does is going to have fallout effect on caterers and everybody else. But I don't think that's avoidable once the court starts down this path. Once it starts down that path, and much less, I agree with Emily by some distinction that Colorado hasn't adopted between different kinds of discrimination. I, you know, their way of tackling the question was all this stuff about status versus speech, which I think is a gossamer distinction. I don't see why it's not straightforward to just say this is not compelled, this is not speech, period, much less compelled speech and just lumping her in with the caterer, etc. I think that's the common sense way of looking at it, but it sure seems like, well, as you say, Professor, you know, we know pretty much which way this was going to go before arguments started because it was engineered for just this purposes. And why might that have been, Senator? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, there you have it. I mean, we'll see where they where they go on it, but I, I think it's going to be hard to to write in with doctrinal integrity, and this just may sort of twist things around. We'll see in June. All right, I'd like to spend a few minutes on the former president. It's getting harder and harder to keep track of the various legal threats against him, and I do think the metaphor of the Teflon president is basically now overtaken by events. But another, you know, no good, terrible, very bad week. And I just wanted to touch on a couple things. So the criminal conviction of the organization, in short order, a jury comes back, unanimous, nine counts of fraud, eight more against a related company. Thoughts about the upshot for Trump himself, who on the one hand wasn't on trial, wasn't named on the other you know, it's certainly almost a, an alter ego, his brand as the Trump organization. Where does this sort of stand in the storm of blows that he's now absorbing? Well, it's a blow to his brand, and he is his brand, and it makes him look less Teflon-like. And people know, I think, that the idea that juries will not step up to the plate is just not true anymore. Juries have some common sense. Sure, there were a number of jurors who were not Trump haters in that situation, and yet mm -hmm. they quite quickly found him guilty. They found his company guilty. They didn't buy the idea that this was all done for Weiselberg. Although the issue was joined about whether he knew, right? I think for that reason. Right. That was the closing argument, closing yeah. argument made. On both sides, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Bad, but not knockout blow, just because Trump's yeah. approval and disapproval ratings have been so incredibly steady. But I mean, this was like a terrible set of the last few weeks for him. So maybe that could change. Harry, how much legal jeopardy do you think he's in now? I mean, we don't quite know what else is going on in the various pots of investigations. But what's your sense? A hell of a lot. So I spend my time trying to read the tea leaves on this. I think the Mar-a-Lago case is close. 
to charging. And when I say close, I've thought carefully about the steps in between here and there, and, and it still might be several months, three months or so. But I think the momentum for it and, and what they've done in the grand jury and Smith and everything kind of points that way. I think Fulton County might come first. My best guess is, though, that it may never result in a conviction. Oh, my God, we, Professor Tribe, what, how much time could we spend on the federal courts issues involved in a local DA charging a former president? I think Bragg now is like looking to do the case that he shied away from before. And then the whole welter, you know, Smith sends out subpoenas on the January 6th stuff, which dovetails with Georgia, by the way. And I think they're taking that seriously. That'll be months and months to bring to market. And a really interesting question to me is what sort of synergy might it have with the Mar-a-Lago case, which will precede it? I must say, I agree that he'll be indicted. I think it's going to be a race to the courthouse among all three. I'm not sure I agree that he'll be convicted by the United States. Anywhere. Not because of of jury nullification or anything, but just because of delay moves. You know, and if the Democrats lose the presidency before there is a final conviction, then we're going to have a new attorney general and a dismissal of charges. So that's a fair point. And a very important thing to say is even when the relatively clean example of Mar-a-Lago, he can make a year go easily before there's actually a jury sworn. Especially if there's a fight over venue. And the only way to avoid that fight is to bring it in Florida. And that's not a favorable, yeah. So can you say one more thing about Fulton County, since it's the only one that's not affected by the Democrats losing the presidency? Why do you think that? Because in some ways, that one is a close fit for the facts we know, right? We're talking about the phone call to Brad Raffensperger to find audio tape. It's a great case. But I just think, first of all, it gets removed right away. If this can work, does that mean the East Oklahoma district attorney can indict Biden the day he leaves office? I just think there's a welter of unprecedented you know, issues that it will frame and that will go through and maybe a couple or three times the whole court system. And, and in fairly short order, it'll be in the federal court, worst jury pool there, et cetera. Harry, you, you may be assuming something that Emily hasn't focused on, and that is there is this statutory procedure by which this state prosecution can be quickly taken to federal court. Then there can be an unsettled series of questions about bringing it back into state court. And I can see them fighting back and forth over whether this is really a Fulton County prosecution. And it literally, this would go to the Supreme Court, I think. Yeah. So the Supreme Court would have to decide before there was an actual trial and conviction whether this state charge must be tried in federal court, which is an unusual animal. But that's the federal court's final exam that a number of professors will be giving three years now. (laughs) And that's why it will take a while. Well, as somebody who used to do this stuff a little bit, I would love to know what's on the mind of the Fulton County prosecution, because you not only have the phone calls, you also have the false electors. Which they're clearly going after now. And they may very well make really good witnesses, even if they don't make really good defendants. And then you've got Jeffrey Clark, who within DOJ ginned up that assault on the Georgia election. The idea that those things are completely unconnected seems implausible. So there's this whole web of of stuff around Georgia that we don't know yet, you know, how much that grand jury is looking at. And then the other thing on Mar-a-Lago, 
I'd be interested to know if they're looking at taking some early pleas from lesser figures just to lock in those witnesses and to make a public display of what the evidence is that my plea is that I did this and I did this because I was told to do it. And I mean, you can really box in your ultimate target with really well done plea agreements with lesser involved individuals. Or just as involved, 100% on both those points. And the and the ultimate question, at the last thing you're talking about, would be one Mark Meadows. Man, I could go another hour, but you guys probably can't, and the people of Rhode Island would probably protest. <laughs> I'm going to call an audible here and change our talking five, which was going to be a softball about New England food, to the last topic, which is the criminal referrals that the January 6th committee has now said will happen other than, sorry, to take away the hundred point answer, the former president himself, the talking five assignment is five words of any kind on the potential criminal referrals who you'd either like, who you expect. Give me some brief thoughts, please. If you would on uh, the January 6th committee referrals to the department of justice. I think we'll know the answer on December 21st. Wow, what a wussy answer I've got. <laughs> Sorry. Prerogative of a, of a uh, emeritus professor. Load up on evidence and be very, very discreet about prescription. Ah, nice. Okay. Is the question, what are they going to do? Yeah, the question would include that. Huh. I don't know. Three words. Okay, <laughs> can, I have, can I borrow two of yours? He wins the brevity. I'm going to go with, I hope includes Mark Meadows. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Emily Bazelon, Professor Larry Tribe, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can also join our Patreon site, where we post bonus discussions and live Q&A sessions with me exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Juliet Kayyem about the broader meaning of the Oath Keeper's verdict. If you like the work we're doing at Talking Feds, please consider joining Patreon because that is how we are able to keep the podcast itself with very few commercials, unlike almost all of the other lawn politics podcasts in our category. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to the multi-talented Cameron Crowe for explaining target designation. Our gratitude, as always, goes to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. 
Talking Fez is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.